Samuel chapter 4. Now that's where we'll be camping out most of our time this morning, at least in that general vicinity. Thank you for being here. Uh, I appreciate you coming out uh, for these studies. And I know that weak mornings are difficult for a lot of folks. And uh, I'm sure that many of your schedules will have you maybe in and out this week, and that's fine for sure. Uh, each of the lessons will stand alone. So if you miss one, it's not like you're going to miss this big piece of the puzzle and you'll be lost the rest of the week. But if you are able to come every morning, what I'm hoping is that we're going to see this pattern going through our studies uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting, the Ark of the Covenant and the stories that go along with it tell us a lot about God and a lot about Israel and a lot about their leadership. And so what we'll see through this is this really fascinating kind of caveat where God is saying, now here's a story about the ark, but really what it's doing is it's telling you a whole lot about what's going on between my people and me. And I hope that as we look at this, that it's not simply going to be a reminder from history. I hope it's going to be something that gives us a great deal of insight in our own relationship with God as we see uh, for us what this ark was shadowing that we see in reality and have even more responsibility as we think about our spirituality. This morning, we're going to talk about a really dark period in the time of Israel. It's a time that we can kind of sum up in the name of a newborn. That is, all of this disaster and death and, and such is going on. A dying mother says, I want this child to be named Ichabod. Now, if you think about that, you may be thinking somewhat uh, literary of Ichabods that have become famous in, in literature. But this Ichabod is famous not because of that, but because of what his name represented. That this mother, as she sees what's going on, the world that this child is being born into, she can just simply say, call him inglorious. The glory of God has departed. So we're going to be there here in a few minutes. But we've got to get a running start. We've we got to understand what's going on with the Ark of the Covenant first. And you well know that by now, we've got to go back to Genesis, right? We've got to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we've got to figure out what's going on that's going to be represented by this Ark in the lives of the people of Israel. So here in Genesis 1, we get this beautiful summation of creation. Just this short unit where God's saying, I spoke and the world came into existence. And then in chapter 2, we've got this beautiful garden that God has planted and he's put the man in it and he's created the woman to, to be his, his ally there in the garden to carry out the work of humanity. And so as we think about what God is showing us in the Garden of Eden, He's showing us what He wants for us. Whether you're Adam and Eve or whether you're somebody living right now, it's the same. What God has wanted with humanity is a partner, someone with whom He can have fellowship, who He's going to make somewhat of the prime ministers of this earth, to have dominion, but also to have this very strong, loving relationship with Him and so here within this garden, you've got the perfect setting of God and humanity meeting together. We learn from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 as well, that God would make a grand entrance into the garden. 
And it would be a time that he would come to share the knowledge of good and evil with Adam and Eve, to have these training sessions, to bring them along, to help them understand what it meant to be a child of his, to be in this fellowship. And the picture that we have is that if Adam and Eve would have behaved themselves and their descendants would have behaved themselves, then Eden would have slowly spread until the entire earth is filled with the images of God, these humans made in his image who are living in full fellowship and accordance with him. That's going to be delayed. It's going to be delayed. Because Adam and Eve and their descendants make a very bad choice, and that's to break this harmony. Because the harmony in the Garden of Eden all hinged on respect for who God is. Of understanding not only that he's the creator, but also he's this one who has created you for this grand fellowship that he's envisioning eternally. Now, when you're brought into the world, you're going to stay. You're going to last in this fellowship with him. But what we find is that when Adam and Eve made the decision to sin, as we talked about yesterday, the serpent comes in, they fall prey to this terrible fallacy. You know, he's, the, the serpent saying, well, you can be like God. And as we noted, they're already like God. They're created in his image. But yet they fail to respect God. And so God says, you got to go. You, you've broken the harmony. you got to get out of this garden. And what he then does as they leave the garden no longer having access to the tree of life. You'll recall that he puts cherubim there. And I don't know exactly what this looks like. In my mind, I imagine that Eden's somewhat up on a mountain. And you can imagine this path that's going up to that paradise with God. But yet, here you've got cherubim and this flaming sword that's going in every direction. That's saying to Adam and Eve, you can't come back here. But I would suggest to you this morning that maybe that's not so much punishment as it is protection for them. Because they are not fit at this point, to be in the presence of God. And to have come into the Garden of Eden in that sinful condition, and to have eaten from the tree of life, would have meant that they would have been in this state of eternal death. Because you're living forever, but it's going to be this total out-of-harmony existence. And so God is, for their protection, stationing these, these cherubim there, so that they can't come back in. Can you imagine how much Adam and Eve would have longed for that? After they saw what it's like back in the general creation, where God is saying, <clears throat> not going to let the ground work for you anymore. Not going to let the, the bringing in of new generations be an easy thing. Children are going to die in childbirth now. Just as Adam's having trouble with the ground, Eve, you're going to have trouble bringing your harvest in of those children. And I suspect in the centuries that followed all of that, how many times Adam and Eve reflected back and said, if only, if only we could be back in that garden. But things had changed now. 
Here, though, is where we need to pick up with our theme that we're going to be looking at with the Garden of Eden. And that is, God is not done. Because Adam and Eve sinned, he's not done with this idea. He's not ready to bring the earth to a crashing halt, kill humanity off, and just, just consider this whole thing something that we're never going to try again. Not that at all. In fact, that Eden ideal, that Eden dream is going to be kept alive, even as God talks to Cain. He says, you need to listen to me and realize that, that you've got to stay with me if you want things to go well. And we see all of these Genesis stories bringing that out. But then when we get to the book of Exodus and God is giving instructions of what he wants the children of Israel to build, he says, I want you to make a tabernacle, I want you to make a tent. It wasn't very big. If you've ever paced out the measurements for it, we could easily put it inside this auditorium. It, it wasn't this grand, impressive thing. It was a tent. But what that tent was to do was to, in a small way, mimic Eden. And you can see a lot of that in the description. You've got the cherubim that are woven in. Uh, with the tabernacle and then later the temple for sure, you're going to see a lot of, of kind of a throwback to the plant life that was in Eden. You've got things woven in and, and things being designed. Even you consider the, the candlestick would have looked somewhat like a tree representing Eden. And so this tabernacle was placed in the middle of their encampment. God says you're going to camp the tribes on every side but this is central for you so that no matter where you are in the camp, you can look to the middle of it and you can be reminded that in a sense, I am still with you. It, it's not Eden. It's not Eden. But the idea is still there. And so within this tabernacle were two compartments and in the most isolated of the compartments, was the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark is reflecting the Eden ideal. Let me demonstrate that to you from Exodus chapter 25. As God is giving the designs for it, He says you shall put the mercy seat, or the atonement cover, some translations read, on the top of the Ark. And the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God is saying, it's going to be in this location, I'm going to teach you the difference between good and evil. I'm going to show you what it's to be like. But let's focus in particularly on that phrase, here is where I'm going to meet you. Here is where we're going to have fellowship. But as we mentioned, this is a very isolated part, and you've only got one man who's allowed to go in there one time a year. And so the high priest is going to represent kind of this composite of humanity. And it's so interesting to watch what he's got to do. So he's going to leave the general population. He's going to come into the tabernacle grounds. He's going to cleanse himself. He's going to enter the most holy. And then he's going to enter, or the holy place. Then he's going to enter the most holy in order to make atonement for the people. So even in this meeting place 
of God and man, it's severely limited to just one. And just one who is acknowledging when I come here in the presence of God, I've got to realize what sin has done and I've got to make atonement. He's made atonement for himself and then making atonement for the people. So you've got, yes, a representative of Eden. But it's a long way from all humanity being there for sure. And so as the children of Israel would look at this ark, it was to bring back a lot to their minds. Now, with that somewhat as our backdrop, let's head over to 1 Samuel chapter 3. A lot of water's gone under the bridge by this point. You can think about they've built a golden calf. They, they've almost lost their connection with God. God has forgiven. He's joined them again. We've gone through the entire period of, of the rest of the life of Moses and the, the conquering of Canaan and the judges of Canaan. And we come to 1 Samuel and we've got kind of the, the final stories that we'll have associated with Samuel beginning here. And as we look at what's going on in this, we're going to drop back to chapter 3 for just a minute here as we get a lead in. You look at in the latter part going down to verse 19. It says, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You ever thought about the concentration here of what God's saying about Samuel? <laughs> In just these short verses, it's like God is being awfully repetitive here in giving us this. Samuel grew... And the Lord was with him. His words didn't fall to the ground. Everybody in Israel knew that the Lord was with Samuel. The Lord appeared to, uh, at Shiloh, revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Why is God telling us all of this? Well, it's because this is the last we're going to read about Samuel, chapter 7. What we're going to find is that God is saying... Everybody, let me remind you, I gave them a prophet, and I spoke to that prophet. I gave words to that prophet. Everybody from north to south knew he was a prophet. His words were with you, and then all of a sudden, we're going to forget all about him, and we're going to see the mess that that gets us into. Because what follows all of that is this battle against the Philistines. God doesn't give us a lot of lead in here. He simply says, Israel has gone to battle with the Philistines and it's not going to go so well, verse 2 shows us. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. This arch enemy, been with them a long time. And so Israel's going to ask the correct question here about this. After this defeat, they're going to say, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has he allowed all of this to happen? Unfortunately, they are not going to seek the correct answer. They should have been trotting to Samuel's tent at this point and saying, you need to share the message of the Lord. What's going on here? What are we doing wrong? Instead, they're going to seek to answer this in a very inappropriate way. 
And so what the elders do is they don't send for Samuel, or better yet, they don't humbly go to Samuel. Instead, they say, we got a great idea. We got a great idea. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. And things will really turn around at that point. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. You probably have. But what they say is so telling here. They say, perhaps it will save us. You ever thought about that? It will save us. I don't know. This is sheer speculation. I wonder if they were thinking to Jericho. And they thought, hey, remember when that ark you know, went around the city and the walls just fell in? Man, maybe that'll happen for us. They totally missed the point, though. Perhaps it is going to save us. Now, as they go for the ark, <clears throat> we need to catch some very subtle or maybe not so subtle things that God is going to tell us here. Because he's about to give an extremely ominous description of things and you got to be reading pretty close to catch what he's saying here because this is sometimes one of those read over passages <laughs> you, you just don't really pay attention to what's going on here verse 4 of chapter 4 it says the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts that's not a term we use a whole lot for God, but it's a powerful one. Because that word hosts refers to armies or war. And so God is saying what they're doing is they're sending and they're getting this ark that belongs to a God who very much can go to war. That's going to be in a way that they are not anticipating, but we're not quite done with the description. He says, they sent and they brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. So the cherubim are kind of like, uh, I always hate using this term. Maybe somebody can give me a better one. I've not gotten a better one yet. But it's almost like God's bodyguards. <laughs> God doesn't need bodyguards, but that's sure what the cherubim seem to be, that they are keeping people from approaching God incorrectly. And so here are these very frightening creatures. If we were to see one, we would, we would very much be alarmed by that. And so God is saying, let me tell you what they've got. They've not just got the Ark of the Covenant. They've got the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's what they're doing. Interestingly, later in the week, when we get to David's problem with the ark, this is the exact same description that God will use for it. But we're not done. And God says, you know who they got it from? Well, if you continue in verse 4, it says, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, these are not good guys. These, these are men who we're told are both adulterers and thieves. These are men who were stealing sacrifices. These were men who were having relations with women right there at the tabernacle. These are bad guys. And God says, these are the ones who are protecting my ark. These are the ones who are there uh, to try to keep things going straight. So nothing we're being told is turning out very good about this. Yet, 
when they bring the Ark of the Covenant on the battlefield, there is great delight amongst the Israelites as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And by the way, you notice that God never stops with just Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, Ark of the Covenant of God, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Throughout all this, he's reminding them who it belongs to. When it came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's the kind of, of shout where you are so anticipating victory you can taste it. And so here they are temporary, temporarily delighted. The Philistines are temporarily terrified. This warlike people raised from young children up to be soldiers. It says something if they're scared. Verse 7 they were afraid and they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe is us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. And then so interesting. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. The Philistines are remembering more about God than the people of God are remembering about God. Oh, man, they brought Israel... To, to victory, these gods crushed the people of Egypt. And so we're set now for what's about to go on. And so as all of this happens, as we get into the next section, there's going to be a high concentration on death. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to how many people are dying in this section. We've already had 4,000 wiped out. But now, as all of this is going on, and they come into the, they've, they've brought the ark into the battlefield, they think they're going to be saved. Let's see what happens in all of this. And so we go down to verse 9. The Philistines say, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell for Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. I tell you what, if you lose 30,000 people in a modern battle, that's going to make the news, isn't it? That's going to be considered a total catastrophe. That's exactly what God's pointing out to us. He says, they think... That this ark is making them victorious, but I'm going to show them differently. That if they don't respect me, they don't have my power in battle. 30,000 of them die, but we're not done yet. We're going to find also that Hophni and Phinehas die there on the battlefield. I suspect this was judgment from God, don't you? for the lives they had lived, men who had been given such favor to, to have this honorable position and had treated it so shamefully, they die. And so verse 12 tells us that there's a man from Benjamin. He runs from battle, has his clothes torn, dust on his head. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. So Eli's hearing all this, and he, he says, what's going on? What's the uproar here? And so they come to him, 98 years old, is, he's almost blind, and they say, the ark was captured. 
today. Your sons are dead. And the ark has been captured. And when Eli hears news of the ark being captured, it says he kind of fell off his seat. He'd been sitting there ever since they took it. He knew this was wrong. He knew this wasn't how you treat the ark. And he's been trembling. It's this idea of of both reverence and, and being terrified all mixed together. And as he hears the news about the Ark of the Covenant, he falls over backwards and he breaks his neck and he dies. But we're still not done. So his daughter-in-law is hearing about all of this and she hears that her husband has been killed. And interestingly enough, it also notes here that when she heard, this is verse 10, when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured. And her father-in-law was dead. And her husband was dead. She, she goes into child labor. And as she's dying, they tell her that she's got a child. And she says, what I want you to name him is inglorious. The glory of God has departed from this place. And what a sad testimony that we find here. But let me remind you what they've done. They stormed Eden. It's kind of the picture of if Adam and Eve had tried to fight the cherubim to get back in. The death that would have occurred there. We're seeing it here. They stormed Eden. They had unauthorized men go into the most holy place where they were not allowed to take that Ark of the Covenant and to use it for a purpose that they were not to use it for. And so here we've got humans who are unprepared to meet their Lord. And we see the danger of what goes on with that. Now, as we consider all of that... I think there are some really strong messages that transcend the centuries. That as we think about what they should have learned, it's not a different thing from what we should learn about that. And let's kind of state the obvious here, that you don't take God lightly. You don't treat God in such a way that you are going to just think you can do whatever you want to around God. And that's a hard thing for humans. I think it's a hard thing for Americans. I think it's a hard thing for Americans because we not only don't understand royalty, we shun it. That's the basis of our entire founding, isn't it? We don't want somebody telling us what to do. Uh, I was recently talking to a man, uh, don't be impressed by this because it's not impressive, who's a friend of the king of Zambia. (laughs) It's a little African nation. And he was saying, oh, when when you dine with the king of Zambia, Everybody sits on the floor except for him. And nobody finishes their meal before he does because he'll think you're saying he's fat if you do that. And he takes too long to eat. But then it was interesting, he said, but now Americans aren't expected to follow those rules. It's like they understood. You know, that that we don't meet royalty and say, you're better than us, you're just like we are. That may give us a little trouble with God. Because God's not just like we are. God is in no way on the same plane or level that we're on. 
And we have to understand that when we come to God, we treat him with respect. You see, that's what the people of Israel were not doing. They were treating him exactly like the Philistines were. They had turned God into an idol. They thought that this box, this box was going to save them. Just like the Philistines thought, oh, these gods, this paganism, they're both acting like a bunch of pagans, aren't they? And so God is saying, if you treat me like that, then what I'm going to do is to show you what it's like to be without me. We need to pay really close attention to this word glory in all of this. It, it means literally heavy. You know, it, it would be corresponding, those of you who are a little bit older, you remember for a while uh, we had in, in our culture, if somebody said something, you said, man, that's heavy. <laughs> you still hear that every once in a while. What you're saying is, that's a deep, contemplative thought. i gotta, I got to chew on that for a while. Well, that's what we're saying here. And oddly enough, it's the same word that's used to describe Eli when it says he was old and heavy. And I suspect that wasn't an accident, that that word was thrown in there because this heavy man was not treating God in a very heavy way. And so here is this great God, the God who's weighty in every way, the God who is, is glorious in every way, and they're treating him like they would treat an idol. And what this points out to them and what it points out to you and me is God's not going to hang around with people like that. God's not going to force himself on people who refuse to take him seriously. Now, let's think of something else that's really important from this section also that I think is applicable to us. And that is when we talk about spirituality and when we talk about superstition, those are not comparable ideas. But what Israel had done is they had treated the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. It would be like if you knew somebody who carried around a, a rabbit's foot or a four-leaf clover or something like that. Uh, a man gave me a buckeye one time and he said, My dad thought if you carried a buckeye in your pocket it was good luck. He said he didn't really believe it, but how much room could a buckeye take up anyway? <laughs> it's, it's like, just in case, right? Just in case, no. That's not what spirituality is all about. Spirituality is putting your trust in someone who's proven himself, not in some force of nature. That's an idea that really spans the Bible. I'm not going to go too far down this trail, but just to give you something to think about, Jeremiah dealt with that, right? You remember when he writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't go after other gods to your own heart, then I will dwell in this place and the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. People were doing in the days of Jeremiah what they were doing on the battlefield. They looked and said, we got the temple. Shows who we are. God is with us. God says, hang on a minute. You treat people well. You love me. You take care of strangers. Yeah, then we'll talk. We go to the New Testament. We find that Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. He talked about those who love the praise of men. 
And then he talks with the Gentiles about those who think their words, if they pile on the words, they're going to get through to God. It's kind of like, you know, it's like switchboard operator. If you can just get the right area code in, you can hook up to, to this God that you want to talk to. Jesus says, no. Paul says to false teachers, they go after all those things. Timothy, avoid them in every way. We can see that, can't we? We can see it on the battlefield. We can see it with the temple. We can see it with the Pharisees and Gentiles. We can see it with false teachers. But my question is, can we see it in ourselves? That's the most important question. How do I treat God? Is he my good luck charm? You know, as long as I'm, I'm doing the right thing and, and I'm, I'm a regular churchgoer and I'm making sure I take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and, you know, God's going to save me because of that. Well, those are good things. But if they're based on this concept that if I can just keep those rules, well, God's going to owe me. God's going to come. He's, he's going to save me because of that. And it completely misses that Genesis ideal of the fellowship and, and the relationship that God's desiring with us. And so we must be very careful about that. Let me leave you with one final one here. Is that we realize we've got to meet God on His terms. We can't storm into Eden and say to God, you are required to do this for us. We'll probably deal a little bit more with this tomorrow, but I want to take you past all of this. We're going to have some dealings with the Philistines we'll look at, but I want to go past that just for a minute. And you look over to what Samuel told the people in chapter 7. We've got two sets of parallels going on here. Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then... Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. See how that works? With all your hearts, because you're directing your heart to God, you're putting away your foreign gods so that you can serve the true God. He says you do all of that, then you're going to see how battles won. You're going to see what it's like to have God on your side. And those words that were spoken so long ago are still so important for us today because if we are giving God anything less than all of our heart, we're treating Him like that good luck charm. We're thinking if we can just bring the ark out on the battlefield, we're going to win the day. That is not it. And so then we realize that God desires nothing less than that ideal of the seventh day of creation where man has been created in this grand and glorious environment and God just kind of pictures that seventh day going on forever and then in chapter 2 that Eden ideal that's what God's desiring for us and if we have any lesser view of God then we're never going to take him seriously. We're never going to look at him as that weighty idea, that heaviness that surrounds him. But for those who look to his wisdom and to his strength and respect him and love him, they're the ones who are going to understand. So that's our choice. That, that's what the choice has always been about how seriously I'm going to take God. So we end our discussion today with a mess. <laughs> things, are, things are terrible. You've had 
over 30,000 deaths. But the ark of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned over the cherubim, his ark is now off in pagan hands. And they're going to learn a few things too, which we'll talk about tomorrow. But for this morning, let me just remind us of all of this. That God has always had one desire for humanity, and that's to save us. To save us really in a lot of ways from ourselves. That we get off track thinking these things, but God is saying, if you'll just trust me, then that salvation can be yours. And that message is present this morning. I don't know how many we have here this morning who have not given your lives to God. We may have some, and I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here to hear these things. And if you've been impressed this morning about who God is, and God as king has summoned you into his kingdom. He's he's called for you to come and join his kingdom, but he's going to leave that choice up to you. If you understand that and you're ready to be a part of it, God's as ready to save now as he was with Adam and Eve. And I hope you're ready to take him up on that. If you're ready to be washed in the waters of baptism, to have your sins forgiven, today's the day to do that. And it's going to be the day that you start seeing God in his glory and his weightiness and a God who will take you home to be with him. If you need to respond, you can do so now while we sing together.